What we do is we try to help people build their personal capacity for change in the moments that really matter. Now, what's tough about that is this is all unconscious. So the notion that you can remember what to do in those moments and how to do it is actually a bit fraught. It's not easy. That's Alex Nother, a leader of our unconscious bias efforts based in the New York office. He's talking about how unconscious bias shows up in the workplace and the work Bain is doing to address it. I'm Keith Bevins, a partner and global head of consultant recruiting at Bain & Company, and this is Beyond the Bio. It's a podcast that shares the stories of our extraordinary people from their perspectives. You can read their bios online, but those barely scratch the surface of who they are and the important work they're doing here at Bain. Today, we'll talk with Alex about his background, being a leader in our Blacks at Bain organization, and his work leading our unconscious bias efforts around the world. Welcome, Alex. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here, Keith. So before we started recording, you and I probably spent at least 20 minutes catching up because we've known each other for so long. But it'd be great to share with the audience a little bit about your background and life outside of Bain. Can you talk a little bit about where you're from and your career path early on? Yeah, sure. Let's start at the beginning, Keith. I'm from a, just outside of Hartford, Connecticut, where I grew up, although my family has always been kind of New York City based in, in that area. I can't summarize the first 18 years of my life in in just a minute, but if there are things that stood out to me, it was that I was kind of a, a book smart kid, really into the artsy, music-y scene, and then I was in this family that I would say stood out like a sore thumb from where I'm from. So, Keith, you know my background, but people meet me and they're often asking, you know, what are you, Alex? Because I'm a, I'm a pretty racially ambiguous looking guy. And so I grew up with uh, my father, who's a white guy from Queens, my mom, who's a black woman from Jamaica, the, the island, not Jamaica, Queens. But, you know, as is typical in the Caribbean, she's also got some mix of, of some Chinese in her. So I came out as this kind of funky looking guy who was a big nerd growing up in school. And so not too surprisingly, I felt like I really stood out. So my big goal when I was a kid was I got to get out of this town. <laughs> I got to I got to get to a bigger city. I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania. And really, that was kind of the formative years of figuring out who I am and, and what I want to do. Alex, before you went to UPenn, what would you say you identified as you know, in high school? Did you identify as black? Did you identify as mixed race, which really wasn't a thing when you and I were in high school? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I mostly just identified as someone who's mixed. I knew I wasn't, I didn't look like other people because I got the constant barrage of what are you? And people would come over, you know, your friends come over to your house and they meet your your parents and they see that your mom is, is black and your dad is white and the town was very predominantly white. So, so it was kind of very clear to me that I was a little bit different. I didn't really know what to characterize myself as though. So I was mixed and I laughed because a lot of that came from actually the surveys that you take. So you take a school test, they'd make you click a box. I was the one who clicked other. And then as things got more sophisticated, other became biracial slash multiracial. And eventually it was check all that apply. But I think that actually in many ways informed how I perceive my own identity. So talk about what it was like finding your tribe or finding your group and your peers at Penn. Yeah, so I got to Penn and it was really this amazing experience because it was the first time really being in a place with a lot of diversity and a lot of different people who had different backgrounds. And I quickly gravitated towards, not too surprisingly, towards other folks who were minorities ethnically, and also folks who were kind of in this hippie, artsy frame of mind, because that was just where my passion lied. 
And so what I really started to gravitate towards, though, was socially impactful work and other people were interested in that. So growing up, because of my own sense of separation or difference from others, I started to realize that there's actually a lot of other groups in the world who feel that way, where because of their background, not by choice, they felt like they were separated or, or different. And so I started to really get involved in student associations or groups or volunteer activities around inner city, low income youth, and really more than anything, homeless populations, because I felt this relatability to them. So I spent a lot of time doing advocacy, volunteer work as part of in the leading member of something called Penn Musicians Against Homelessness. Very hippy dippy stuff. We played benefit shows to raise money for homeless causes. And that really became the nucleus of, call it my, my social experience at Penn beyond the academics. You also mentioned there a little bit that you're a musician as well. I always mistake you for the bass player in one of our local bands, but you're actually guitarist, <laughs> right? Yeah. Growing up, I played guitar in high school, played in some bands, continued it through college and beyond. So yeah, I've always had a passion for music and art and, and call it creative processes. I was a kid who was good at math, but actually wanted to be a lot cooler than that. <laughs> I think every closet nerd or explicit nerd has that ambition to be the, the cool kid at some point in one way, shape or form. So you take this passion for disadvantaged youth and populations. You have this art background and you graduate from Penn and go into finance. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing about being like this free flowing person that I recognize that I am is at least at that stage of my life, I was pretty bad at planning. And, and crafting plans. I've gotten better at it. I wouldn't say I'm perfect. So at that time, let me start back with, with my academics. I was bouncing between like five different majors up until the last minute. I was debating between fine arts, psychology, economics, Spanish, and probably something else that I can't even remember at this point. I had no job prospects because I wasn't focused on recruiting. I was focused on working in nonprofits. Right. And right. I had that movie story where I actually worked as a waiter during college, almost full time during the evenings and on weekends. And the way I landed in business was I had a table and an HR vice president from an office building next to the restaurant. I served the table. She handed me a business card and it was the classic movie line. Hey, if you want to do something else, give me a call. <laughs> and I had no idea what this company did or what she wanted me to do, but I gave her a call. And she brought me in one day to meet a couple guys to figure out what to apply for. And at the end of it, they said, hey, we think you have potential. Do you want to work here? I had nothing else going for me. So I said, give me a weekend to think about it. I came back Monday and I said, sure, what do you want me to do? They said, well, we'll train you in accounting and finance. And I said, okay. And that was about it. So you needed a weekend to think about it, despite from what it sounds like having no other options to really weigh it against. Well, I didn't want to sound desperate. <laughs> I figured that sounding desperate wouldn't be a good look. But, you know, Keith, it's funny. It was a moment that I look back on and I didn't really understand the gravity of it because I was too young. But in retrospect, it was actually a really formative period. So I was into this socially impactful stuff. I was getting an opportunity to work in business that seems totally unrelated and I made this pact to myself at that time, which was, I'm going to do this business thing because it's the only opportunity I have right now. But actually, I think I can gain some skills and gain some access to people, networks, capital, other things, rise up. And then at some point, I'm going to do a 180 
I'm going to loop back to socially impactful stuff. Now, this was my, this is 21 year old Alex here. So not particularly well-formed plan, but it was actually the seed of kind of what launched and has formed my career. That really uh, resonates with me as somebody who did his master's thesis in a middle school classroom and then chose consulting and chose business with an eye towards one point going back to the classroom or going back to education. It totally resonates with me as well. It's almost like you're reading my business school essays here. <laughs> Speaking of business school, it sounds like your passion for Penn reemerged in your career path. It did. So I, I started working. So the company, I guess I didn't name them as Aramark. If you don't know them, I'm sure you do, Keith. But for those listening, big, big company, $13, $14 billion company that does food facilities and uniform services. So a bunch of big industries, but kind of niche and an odd collection I was doing finance and accounting work. I just started to realize that in this big grand scheme plan of mine to gain access and understand business, I was seeing a pretty narrow slice of what the business world really was in terms of capability and industry. So I decided with my loose form plans, maybe business school would be a place to broaden my horizons, gain the exposure I need. And I applied to a few schools and Wharton let me in. So I was already in Philadelphia and was excited to go back. So, and I think while you were at Penn is when we probably met during consultant recruiting or summer associate recruiting. What piqued that interest? What brought you to a recruiting event? And sort of how did you end up choosing Bain for the summer? Well, what led me to recruiting events and consulting broadly was actually a friend of mine who I'd met very early on at Penn named Kelsey, who was absolutely focused, the opposite of me, had the plan get into consulting from business school. So I, I admired that. As I heard more about what consulting could do, it, it fit into this broader plan of gain access, gain exposure, gain skills. So I started to do my research. And what I realized was not every consulting firm is the same. And so for me, coming from a niche industry and one type of functional background, I wanted to find a place that would let me broaden my horizon. So get exposure to different industries, capabilities, and types of work despite not having all the, call it prerequisites and deep experience in there. And so when I heard about Bain, the fact that early on you can be a generalist, that's, that is one path that is offered, that really appealed to me. And so I got pretty focused on wanting to be at Bain. And then the other thing was working at a company like Aramark, it's a really big institution, hundreds of thousands of employees. And the corporate center is smaller, but still I felt like I was small cog in a big machine. So one of the things that just stood out to me about Bain was that there is this home office model where, yes, the network is really big, but I'd still be in a nucleus of a few hundred people in, in this case, Chicago, where I was looking, where I could really get to know them and people could help me develop. Because even though I didn't have a lot of plans, I was self-aware enough to know I was going to need some, some help and some mentorship because I, I really didn't know what I was getting into or what I was doing. And so that really appealed to me about the Bain model. Yeah, and the home office model that we're using sort of has people sort of living locally in a market, but not necessarily sort of only working there and traveling all over the place and getting to see the world a little bit. The other part about home office is that you end up building relationships with people that you meet along the way. We'll talk a little bit about unconscious bias in a minute, but I know that one of the things you've been passionate about, both in Chicago and now in New York, is our Blacks at Bain program and our Blacks at Bain network. One of the early guests on the podcast. Actually, our first guest was Maria Gordian, who leads our Blacks at Bain and has been leading our Latinos at Bain groups. But can you talk a little bit about the work and that the organization does and how you've plugged into that? Yeah. I mean, so one is, as Keith, as you know, when you enter Bain, 
the affinity groups are right there for you. So for me, Babs, Blacks at Bain was kind of an immediate community for me. And I was introduced to the group and it became, I think up front, really just this immediate connection. And I, I see the group as a give and take. So it, in the beginning, I was taking a lot from the group, which was folks to help me, support me, mentor me, and to really show me that I belong in business and that I can do this. You know, I think for a lot of folks, people of color, particularly black and brown folks, I think sometimes we feel some extra imposter syndrome or some extra pressure. And Blacks at Bain was really kind of a, a core and important group for me to show me that I can do this and I can be here. And people who have similar perspectives, experiences to me are there for me. You know, as I've gotten more senior and now I've been at Bain for, I guess, eight plus years, I've started to now give more to the group by taking some leadership. I'm a co-champion in the New York office, as you know, with John Barfield, where I spend a lot of time working on our recruiting efforts, supporting and mentoring the more junior folks, just as folks had done for me when I joined the organization. And also just trying to have a lot of fun. You know, it's this is a great job. It's a busy job. And it's important not to take yourself too seriously. But it's more to do that. It's better to do that with other people and have fun. So organizing social events within Babs and then also Babs organizing social events that bring others, folks who aren't part of Babs, into it to share our culture, our stories, our experiences has been a really meaningful part of my experience. And we talked a little bit about your musical gifts and talents and interests. For those of you who are listening, uh, you can't see, but Alex's Zoom background is actually the nine members of the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, and I typically roll with a background of graffiti from around the world when I'm, when I'm on Zoom. Alex, one other passion in a little bit of the non-corporate culture that I know you have are your tattoos. Uh, <laughs> as, as one of the more heavily tattooed people that I've, I've encountered during my time at Bain, can you talk a little bit about that and what they mean to you and why you've made the, the choice to sort of wear your art on your body? Yeah, I mean, Keith, I think you and I are similar in that we really like artistic expression that's authentic and, for lack of a better term, unfiltered. So, you know, when it comes to music, listen to a lot of indie music. I know you do, too. Mm -hmm. When it comes to art, I know you photograph street art. I do, too, because... It's authentic. It's unfiltered. And honestly, there's no celebrity attached to it. No marketing. It right. just is what it is. I kind of see tattoos as the same thing. Tattoo artists are not these big celebrities, but they're really talented artists. And one of the things that's really cool about tattoos is that unlike other forms of art, it's a collaborative process. So you have someone who has amazing skills and you give them subject matter that inspires them. You work with them and they create art for you. And it's fully authentic because it's what you, the wearer of the tattoo wants. It's high quality if you are willing to pay for the right artist, which I waited until I was old enough to have the money to do that. And then it's there and there's no filter to it. For me, my tattoos, I don't really get into the meanings of them, they're personal, but they're reminders to me about memories, beliefs, identity, things that matter really deeply to me. And so what I like about tattoos is that People say, well, how can you put something on your skin? It's permanent. How do you know you'll like it? And my view is I get to choose what I see on my body. So I get to choose the memories or the things I want to be reminded of. And that's really important. The, the other thing is, so I don't, in that sense, I don't get tattoos for anyone else. I don't really care if anybody likes them or doesn't like them. I do know folks who like, like to get them because they're aesthetically pleasing or they think it looks cool. I, that's not me. But 
I do think that it's important to be authentic to who you are and not hide from that. And I think in the business world, tattoos are kind of viewed as taboo. I get it. People look at my arms and say, he's got tattoos and they make judgments. In cue unconscious bias, people have thoughts or, or judgments about it. But I think it's really important that people actually do see it because then they realize the ink that's punched into my skin actually has nothing to do with the quality of what's between my ears. And at Bain, when I joined, I didn't have a single tattoo. So there's folks here who knew I was a smart, talented guy, knew my character and who I was. And now as they see these tattoos all over me, realize there's nothing different about me other than some really cool art. And they get to see a falcon and death head moss on my forearm when we talk. And that's why I'm not going to stop wearing polos in the summer. That's really great. And it's been nice to see the journey and, and see you sort of represent some of the work that you're doing. So that's actually a great segue into the sort of what I would say is your primary focus in a lot of ways right now at Bain, which is the unconscious bias work that we're doing. Can you talk a little bit about what unconscious bias is and talk a little bit about how we're approaching it? Because it really, over the last several years with your involvement and Michael's involvement, has really transformed the way we're approaching a lot of things that we do as a firm and making them better in, in more ways than we'll be able to cover today. But can you give us that overview to start? Sure. L yeah, let's start with what unconscious bias is, because I think a lot of folks come in with different senses or definitions in their mind. I'm an analogies type of person, so I hope that works for folks. But the way I think about it is, it's kind of like autopilot on a plane. So most folks, I'm going to guess, who are listening have gone on a plane and have a rough sense of autopilot, which is planes have this really powerful computer that is taking in tons of information, and then it makes decisions. It helps the plane fly. So as it takes in wind speed and pressure and radar readings and temperature, it then computes all that to say, let's bank a little bit left because my goal is to stay in the air, be safe, get from point A to B. And then you have pilots who can maneuver the autopilot or disengage it if they really want. And so when I think about unconscious bias for our brains, it's similar, which is we have this really strong supercomputer that basically has its own set of algorithms. It's taking in lots of information all at the same time and helping us make sense of the world around us, helping us make decisions on what we say or what we do that's generally pretty helpful for us because otherwise, if you had to think through everything, it'd be really hard. The reason I like this analogy is that most folks wouldn't get on a plane without pilots. And the reason, if you think about it, is autopilot's great, but it's not perfect. Right. So if there's severe turbulence, planes can fly through it. And the autopilot will say, I'm going to go through it. You as a passenger don't want to go through it. It's not actually the intention that you or the pilots have. So the pilots actually... You know, fun fact, I read about aviation, they don't turn off the autopilot. They say, let's change altitudes. So what they do is they tell the autopilot, we're at 33,000 feet. I want to be at 37,000 feet. And they tell the autopilot to go do it. And then the autopilot does all those great calculations to get there. When it comes to unconscious bias, that's what we're trying to do, which is not turn it off because you can't, but rather know how it reacts to stimuli or input to get the outcomes you want. And know when you need to do that so that you don't, as a human being, fly into turbulence, which is where you can experience biased decisions, unintended consequences or results from behaviors. And folks have to understand how to do that, how to be the pilot of their own brain. So let me touch back on two analogies or two metaphors that you use or two examples. You know, one is people meet you as a, a clean cut, ethnically ambiguous Wharton summer associate. 
they sort of have one reaction to you. Now, those people meeting you for the first time you know, will notice the tattoos. How does that analogy or that metaphor play out in terms of people's reactions? Like, let's take it to a level of you know, meeting you for the first time now versus meeting you for the first time you know, eight, nine years ago. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. So some things are the same and some things are different. So because I'm so racially ambiguous, a lot of people, I know folks listening can't see me, but a lot of people think that I'm, I'm Latinx in background. Eight years ago, before and today, people still make judgments. And they make judgments holistically, though. So the clothes I wear made a big difference. If I'm wearing a, a baseball hat and jeans and a t-shirt, people sometimes make presumptions that I'm lower income, less intelligent, not friendly, whatever. And when I wear a suit, somehow that changes a bit. The other fun thing is I'll walk down the street or even in business meetings and someone who is a native Spanish speaker sees me and starts speaking to me in Spanish because they've made a connection in their brain, which is people who look like me speak Spanish. So it's a right. presumption. And they made an instant and there's no intended harm in doing it, but they made that mistake. Now I've actually started to study Spanish and become conversational just so that I can respond, but that's, that's an aside. Now today, I have tattoos. I know for a fact that there are business folks who see those tattoos and make presumptions about, again, my intelligence, my friendliness, my background, my level of risk-taking or aversion, all of which are presumptions that have been wired because when we think about people with tattoos, what comes up, it's, it's actually funny. My mom, being a very clean-cut Jamaican woman, as a kid told me, tattoos are for pirates and criminals and lab animals. <laughs> so we don't associate tattoos. A lot of folks don't associate tattoos with positive things. They associate them with negative things. That's just the right. conditioning and the environment we're in. Now we can't escape that. But again, I wear out my tattoos because people need to rewire that and realize that, that actually that association is not one-to-one. -one. So now let's play that forward into the context of the work that you're doing now. You know, how does unconscious bias show up in the workplace and what are we doing? What are you doing to address that and rewire some of the corporate processes and corporate mindsets that we see day to day? Yeah, so there's really, I'll call it two layers to that. One is decision making and one is I call interpersonal behavior. So what I just talked about was more the interpersonal behavior, which is people judgments. Right. We meet people, we make judgments about them outside of our awareness, so inadvertent, and it changes the way that we perceive them, the way that we treat them, and we're generally not aware of any of those things happening, but they influence us. And so that's one part of it. What we do is we try to help people build their personal capacity for change in the moments that really matter. Now, what's tough about that is this is all unconscious. So the notion that you can remember what to do in those moments and how to do it is actually a bit fraught. It's not easy. So a lot of what we do is we educate people on bias, the behaviors that you can adjust or how you can adjust them. And then in moments that really matter, prompt them, remind them of what to do. So Keith, as you know, take recruiting. Before folks interview, we have a pre-brief. Hopefully that's not any sort of secret sauce because not we want all. folks aligned for the day. And it's well known, one type of bias that's well known is that people gravitate towards, have greater affinity for folks that remind them of themselves. So when we think about our interviewers, they're going to meet 10 people potentially in a day. Some they will recognize as just like them and others different. So the people they recognize like them, they're going to get caught a plus one if you don't do anything. 
the nice thing is we know that just like the autopilot example, punching in, I want a different altitude. You can punch into the brain. Actually, this person who at first doesn't seem like me actually is like me. And the way you can do it is pretty simple. You just identify something you have in common with them. So what we want interviewers to do and what we have interviewers do is look at resumes and underline one thing on every resume for the interviews of the day that they have in common with them so that they can reread it just before meeting the person. That will rewire or trigger the brain to treat the person like they are the same. Now, do I expect people to remember how to do that on their own? I don't. So what we do is we prompt them in the pre-briefs that they will remember to do it, and then they do do it, and then we level the playing field for our interviews. It is really interesting because there's the similarity bias works in two ways. One is you remind me of myself, so you get a plus one. The other thing I've experienced when I reflect on some of the people that I've met over you know, 20 years interviewing and things, people who remind me of someone I know that I don't like, and they get a minus one. <laughs> so it actually, the unconscious bias actually works both ways. And you know, we've played around with identifying something that you have in common with someone, and it's harder or easier depending on the resume and the person's background. So one thing that we encourage people to do is try and identify something they have in common with the person they're interviewing. But one thing that everybody has in common with the person that's interviewing is at one point in their journey, they interviewed at Bain for a job. And we say, you know, if you look at a resume and you, you don't really just are having a hard time finding something to connect on, just connect on that. At the very least, it makes that person more relaxed and more open in the interview so you can see their normal self, not their heightened awareness, super anxious selves. And it just sort of makes the discussion a little bit smoother to start. That's exactly right, Keith. And so the commonality that you identify doesn't have to be robustly deep. It just has to be something that triggers your brain. And, and exactly to your point, what it does for the interviewer is it will have them make more eye contact, more friendly posture, or at least consistent between the folks they meet. So that's the interpersonal side. I, I do want to touch for a second on the structural side, because sure. I think that's really sure. important. So the other piece of it is that because this is unconscious and because you can't always remind people of the behaviors that you want and how difficult that is, we change our processes. We change our systems and how they operate. Now, our processes are good and they already had bias mitigation, but we just continually look at how we can make them better and better and enhance them. The reason that you do this is you can change or adjust processes to either prevent biases from manifesting in someone or to surface them so that they can be mitigated or at least acknowledged that that's a part of the process. So I won't actually get into a specific process at Bain because that would take a bit of time to level set for everyone. But let me give a simple one, which is a, a real world example that happened that illustrates this. So there was a time, I think it was in Boston, where the symphony was 100% men and at some point, the light bulb finally clicked that women can play instruments too, and they can actually do it quite well. So they said, let's get women on the symphony, on the orchestra. And so at first they just intentionally said, we want women on, on the orchestra. And they had auditions and they didn't get many women or any women, I'm not 100% sure. And they said, well, why is that? Well, it's because this unconscious bias had been written in their minds at that time that women aren't as good as playing music. So then they said, let's put up a curtain Perfect. We won't know who's playing the music and we'll purely judge it on the merits of the sound we hear. And they tried it, but they still didn't get many women. Now, of course, the goal was remove the visual stimulus of seeing a woman and therefore the bias won't manifest. The problem in this case was that, especially at that time, women wore high heels more typically. And so they heard the clacking of the heels. Our brains are really sophisticated. So the brain is hearing the sound of heels, 
therefore unconsciously realizing or processing that is a woman playing the instrument and therefore interpreting the quality as being lower. So what they eventually figured out is you need the, the curtain and you need everyone to take off your shoes. And they did both of those. And shockingly, they started to diversify and have women on the orchestra. But I bring that up because there's nothing that you're asking the person to do or remember. You're asking them to just do their job, analyze or assess the quality of the music. But to get the process just right to remove all biases, take some trial and error, some experimentation. And it's a continuous process to get it right. And that's why I exist at Bain, is to keep us refining, refining, refining to make our processes increasingly equitable. That's an awesome story. And hopefully people will take away the lesson from that and reflect on some of the things that they do day to day and the decisions they control and the influence they have and keeping that continual improvement mindset. Alex, as we wrap here, I just want to ask you a question about where we go and where you go leading our unconscious bias efforts. What are the priorities for you over the next couple of years as you go through this journey and take us along with you? Yeah, there's quite a few priorities. I'd say one is, as folks may have seen, Bain put out seven big commitments around racial equity in light of current events. And one of those is to embed unconscious bias and inclusion, education, activation, training, if you will, in all of our trainings. I mean, that's really important because as you probably heard me say, yes, we need to adjust processes and systems. So we need to educate and activate our line leaders. And we've done a lot of that already, but we do want the broad populace of Bain to be enabled and equipped to make personal change, personal capacity, and also support those processes. Those processes are really only as good as the people in them. And so we've done a lot, but we want to continue to expand. We've done, Keith, as you know, as, as the head of recruiting, a lot of work in recruiting, but there's more to go. And we're also putting a lot of focus on our performance development and assessment. So making sure that we are equitable and how we support people in the journey for folks listening, Bain is an apprenticeship model. So we need to make sure that people are learning and getting what they need to grow. It is a high pace, high growth place. And that our assessments on the back end of that are also equitable. And we do a really good job. So I don't wanna portray that we're not doing a great job, but we're also a firm that I'd say is never satisfied. And we recognize that we can always do better and that as our conditions change, as, as our company diversifies, as we change some of our business priorities, we'll need to continually adjust our processes to reflect that. So those are two of the really, really big areas that we will be focusing on across the globe in the coming years. Awesome. And on that note, Alex, I want to thank you for a really great conversation. It's always good to catch up, even if this time in front of a pretty large audience. But it's great to hear about your journey, some of the things that you're working on and making big steps forward for us and helping us make big steps forward as a business. So thanks for your time today. And I look forward to catching up again soon. Always great to talk to you, Keith, and catch up and look forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.